How do you write a book about your own story with the subtitle, How an Ordinary Person Can Make Extraordinary Change and Still Be Humble at the Same Time? How do you write a book for yourself, but also for the reader and not sacrifice something along the way? How do you evaluate whether you're a founder type, an entrepreneur type, or an executive? What are the differences between the three? I get into all of this with Adam Braun, founders of Pencils of Promise, a nonprofit that builds schools all over the world, and best-selling author of The Promise of a Pencil, How an Ordinary Person Can Make Extraordinary Change. All right, here's Adam. Uh, What is most on your mind right now? Wow. Great question. Uh, what's most on my mind right now is um, how do we transition Pencils of Promise from an organization that's known for building a lot of schools very quickly, now 300 plus, uh, from a school building organization into an innovative learning organization. So the focus going forward is, is really not going to be so much on school count, but much more about um, you know, transitioning the way uh, that a child learns uh, and experimenting within our classrooms to see how we can elevate student performance for some of the most disadvantaged children uh, around the world. Awesome. So let's, that's a great place to touch on. We're going to get to that. But first, let's talk about the book, The, the Promise of a Pencil. Did you, did you always know you were going to write a book? Uh, as crazy as this might sound, the answer is yes. I mean, I've always been a writer. I've always you know, written journals. And um, since I was a little kid, people who have known me, I would say know me as a writer. And so, yeah, um, writing a book has always been part of my dream. I just didn't know when it would happen. And how, how did the idea for the book come up? When you first started the organization, did you know, you know you wanted to write a book? Or, or you know, tell our tech audience who, who hasn't yet read the book, uh, what, what's in it for them or what, what should they expect through, through reading it? Sure. So uh, the story of the book uh, really chronicles a lot of my experiences in growing a high-impact uh, organization. And a lot of the parallels, I think, apply to anyone who's building you know, a high-growth tech company because you know, growth is growth and scale is scale. And you know, building an infrastructure and finding great people to support your vision and, you know, any kind of entrepreneurial startup journey has a lot of parallels. And so, you know, I wrote the book um, for a couple reasons, but the main reason was just that I felt that I had learned a lot uh, that could be applicable for anyone else who had a big dream, regardless of what that was, and hoped to one day turn it into reality. So, you know, most books um, I I find to be pretty difficult to finish. You know, I'm like probably uh, similar to many of your listeners in that, I'm about halfway through probably seven or eight books right now. Um, And so I think that, you know, people nowadays, they just consume media really differently. And so, um, you know, I I find like I binge watch, right? So uh, I'm a a, um, cord cutter, like I don't have full TV. And so instead, uh, I use Netflix and I use Apple TV. And, you know, I binge watch a full season of House of Cards over a weekend or so. And so I wanted to write a book that felt like you were binge reading. And so each of the 30 short chapters of this book are episodic. Um, they're almost like serial nature, if you think about it, to some degree, um, where they're all framed around very short stories, you know, six to nine pages. And uh, each of those stories are titled with a mantra. And those mantras are just short, pithy phrases, uh, lessons learned along the way. Um, and so, you know, an example would be never take no from someone who can't say yes. Uh, or uh, make your life a story worth telling, or um, surround yourself with those who make you better. And so, you know, I've had many, many, many people now send in emails at the end of the book, because uh, I give out my email at the very end, uh, just saying how impacted they were, not only by the book, but um, by some of the lessons that are, that are applied to their own life story. And, you know, I find a lot of people um, don't know what they want to go do, or 
even if they know what they want to go do, they don't have a clear path to get there. And so this is just a really honest and kind of vulnerable telling of, of uh, you know, an entrepreneurial journey. And so when you talk to people who are just graduating college and, you know, thinking, you know, what's your biggest piece of advice that you're giving to them? Yeah, uh, great question. I mean, my, my biggest piece of advice is that at some point in time, and ideally the sooner you can do it, the better, uh, you need to get out of your comfort zone. Uh, I really find that a lot of people uh, know what they are, but they don't know who they are. So they have all these identifiers that they're associated with. You know, like if you have a conversation with an average person, they're going to ask you a couple core questions depending on where you're at in life. So if you're a college student, you get asked right away, um, you know, where do you go to school? And then what's your major? Uh, are you in a fraternity, a sorority on a team? And so you're suddenly identified as like Kevin, the sophomore biology major. Uh, and then once you enter the workforce, the default conversation is, you know, what do you do? Where do you live? What are your favorite places to eat? And you get into all these conversations that, again, they describe what you are, but they don't describe who you are. And so oftentimes people live their way into the what's that they're defined by. So they kind of think that they're supposed to act a certain way because they're an engineer at Google or because they're, you know, a soccer player at Colorado State. Uh, but the reality is, you know, who we are is, is something that only we can really kind of figure out and explore. And you do so when you get outside of the bounds of those identifiers. And that happens when you leave your comfort zone. And that can be in kind of trying out a new skill or a new hobby, you know, introducing yourself to new friends or getting, you know, in or out of a good or bad relationship. Um, but I think the most powerful way is through travel um, and, you know, removing yourselves. And it doesn't have to be you know, going into some remote part of the developing world, you know, if, if you live in New York, you can go up to Harlem, uh, you can go into some of the outer boroughs, um, you know, you can go a couple towns over where you've never been before and kind of see what life is like over there or volunteer or get involved in a company. And so that's the first thing I always really push people on is I just encourage them to get out of their comfort zone. And the biggest things you did to get out of your comfort zone, was that, was that travel? Was that get out of a relationship? Was that all the things you just mentioned? Essentially? Um, I mean, it was all the above, <laughs> to be honest. So you know, a really key thing for me was uh, I went on semester at CU when I was a junior in college. At the time, I was a basketball player at Brown, and that was like my whole identity was a basketball player at uh, my certain college. And then I found that, um, you know, once I went on semester at CU, I not only traveled to 10 different countries and just had this incredible exposure to a world that I had never really known before. But additionally, um, I found that I fell in love with backpacking uh, and, you know, being a part of all these kind of you know, totally different cultures from my own and meeting people who had such different viewpoints on the world for me, it, it totally opened up my eyes and I became obsessed with it. And so I just started traveling as much as I could. And, you know, my parents took a very simple approach, which was, uh, they said to me, Adam, we'll support you, just not financially. So they weren't going to give me a dollar, uh, which forced me to become in some ways uh, more of an entrepreneur than I already was. I was always like the kid who was you know, organizing the March Madness tournament or getting my friends to help me sell basketball cards and trade up and stuff like that. But uh, at that point in time, things shifted because I had to build my first business, which was uh, something that became a pretty large scale basketball camp. And that enabled me to make the money to then go travel. And it was through those travel experiences that I really kind of forged and figured out the person that I wanted to be in the world. You, I, I was a manager at University of ba uh, Michigan basketball team which makes you both smarter and better at basketball than me. <laughs> <laughs> but you were part of a much bigger program than that, I was. That's true, that's true. Uh, so tell me, what's, what's not in the book that you, that you wanted to put in, but for whatever reason, didn't make it? 
Oh man, it's first of all, there's a lot. I mean, you know, when when you write a book, you you oftentimes write a lot more content than makes it in. Um, if you're trying, in my opinion, if you're trying to really service the audience, you know, every author has to decide. I think at one point, who they're writing for? Are they writing for themselves and for kind of posterity? Like, do they just want to make sure that their story is put down on paper so that it lasts for generations, um, or is the impetus for them to write uh, to truly serve an audience? And if that's the case, then you probably strip out a lot of the stuff that like you wanted to tell because, you know, it's a story that you really loved, but um, isn't necessarily going to be as beneficial for the audience. And I, I chose the latter approach. I, I wrote a book to serve the reader. Is there a tension between the two? Is it like, you don't know which, which, when you're writing something, is this for my ego? Is this for them? You know, how is it? How, what do you think? I, oh, there's, there, there's very clearly a tension between the two. I mean, the, the first, um, the full manuscript of, of my book of the promise of a pencil was 81,000 words. The final product is 65,000 words. So, I mean, you're talking about, you know, cutting out a lot of pages. Um, you know, a, a lot of that book never made it in there. And I mean, a great example is, uh, you know, I took a, at one point in time of a, a four month backpacking trip through Southeast Asia. And I went through a lot of different countries and I took pride in each country that I went through. And, you know, I had weeks and weeks in Thailand, weeks and weeks in Nepal, all, all these different experiences. And the first time I wrote the book, I was like, I loved each of these experiences and each of the countries that I traveled through, I really want to articulate and capture. But um, that specific chapter was titled with a certain mantra and the mantra needed to, you know, be served through the words of that, the pages um, in that specific, you know, piece of content. And I decided to strip out every single story that didn't directly relate to the core narrative that I was trying to communicate to an audience for their benefit. And so a lot of that, that trip literally was stripped out. A lot of my travels were stripped out in ways that you know, I know are kind of captured in my journals or emails to family and whatnot. But um, if it didn't actually service the reader to learn about this one great night I had out at a bar with friends in, you know, country X, I don't know, Prague or somewhere else, then I decided to strip it out. And so um, there's definitely a tension there. But, you know, it, it, I do a lot of public speaking and you learn over time with public speaking, you can stand up and, you know, speak in a way that elevates you as the hero of the journey. But any great story um, any great storyteller tells a narrative in which you know, Joseph Campbell has this um, idea of a hero's journey. Uh, really smart people understand that the hero of the journey, if you really want to convert action from your audience, is that uh, the hero is not the individual on the stage. You find ways to make it the audience and you leave them with an action that they have to take to fulfill that hero's journey. And so how do you do that, whether it's in a talk or whether it's in a book? Um, I mean, I'll give you an example with the book. I mean, if you look at the the structure of the book and you kind of read the final chapters, um, there's a big shift from telling my story to telling the stories of the individuals who have helped Pencils of Promise grow in the most meaningful and profound ways. Um, and uh, there's a bunch of examples so that the reader can really envision themselves then kind of taking this story and making it their own. I mean, the, the 28th chapter of the book is called Listen to Your Echoes. And what that really references is this idea that, you know, an original storyteller original, you know, messenger, creator of a movement, a, an entrepreneur, a founder, they might put this message out into the world. But what you have to do over time is actually listen to the way that other people make it a meaningful part of their lives and then transfer it to others. And in my mind, that's like an echo, you know, an echo is, is your original voice coming back to you in some kind of modified um, way because it bounced off of some other object or individual or entity. And so the 28 chapter is all about, you know, all of these other people who found ways to build schools and support the organization in really profound ways. Um, and then you get into the, the 29th chapter, which is called um, 
if your dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough. Uh, and that's just kind of about the recognition that uh, the, the book goes from school one to school 100. And now we're at 300 plus. But, um, you know, being at the opening of the 100 school, um, there was this recognition that uh, while the first school was very personal for me, it was dedicated to my grandmother. I'd been alone in this rural community kind of figuring it out. Um, at the 100 school, I recognized, you know, some these other 99, they're not my schools, but they mean just as much, if not more, to someone else. And so then that leads into the epilogue, which is called Make Your uh, Life a Story Worth Telling. And that is just completely about here's what you have to do as a reader to take this and apply it to your own life, whether that's through Pencils of Promise or something else. And so, you know, the, the book is, you know, starts with my journey um, and then it goes into kind of the necessity of why the work is so important. But it leaves the reader not with a sense of like, this is Adam's story, but very much this open ended question of, OK, now that you know these things and hopefully you can't ignore them and you now have the toolkit. Um, how do you go out and follow this roadmap to make your own uh, life a story worth telling? You released this book uh, earlier this year? Uh, I released it um, in hardback. The initial release was, release was um, last year, early last year. And then you know, it, it uh, debuted at number two on the New York Times bestseller list. It became a number one national bestseller over time. And um, then it came back out in paperback this year. And again, uh, made it back on the New York Times bestseller list about a year after release again. There's a lot, obviously a lot of praise and a lot of, uh, you know, people really enjoyed the book. But were there any criticisms of it that you heard uh, or anyone in particular that you kind of thought, hmm, th they might be right. Like maybe this should have been different or, or that that's not, you know, it's a, it's a bit complicated, but maybe that's right. Um, you know, I mean, the truth is when you're putting out a book, there's this part of you that's like, I'm not going to look at a single piece of feedback, you know, <laughs> like I don't want to see what the haters are going to write. And the other thing is when you, when you write a book and you tell your story, um, you know, I was talking to my friend, uh, Eric Ryan, who's one of the founders of method, um, you know, like method soaps and method home products. So Eric and his co-founder, um, Adam put out a book called the method method. That's about their story. And uh, I was visiting him in San Francisco a little bit before my book was coming out. And he was like, look, man, I've had so many huge product releases, you know, like we're going up against Procter and Gamble and these huge kind of tense moments. None of it was even close to the amount of stress that I felt about putting out my book. And, and I totally got it when I went through it, because the reality is, you know, if you build a company and people give it poor reviews, I mean, they're essentially saying, like, I don't like your product or your service, Right. If you put out a book and people don't like your book and the book is a personal narrative, they're pretty much saying, like, I don't like your life. Right. And so um, I thought I'm not going to read a single thing. But, um, you know, once the book started uh, getting reviewed, I, I was just the curiosity kicks in. And, and fortunately, um, it's got overwhelmingly, you know, really, really strong and positive reviews. Um, and so now I'm curious. And so I read most of them. And uh, I'm aware of it. I mean, one of the criticisms, I think, comes from some people that, uh, and, and I'm fine with it because it, it just wasn't written this way in design. I, you know, I purposely didn't write a book that is super technical on nonprofit jargon and nonprofit models because I, I wanted it to be much broader in appeal than just like a hardcore nonprofit audience. So every so often I'll see a random smattering of a review here or there that's like, oh, I wanted to know more about you know, the technicalities of how they work with programs or how they develop curriculum or what they do with the teachers and all that stuff is really housed on our website. But um, I'll get that every so often. The most consistent criticism by far 
um, is, is sometimes said in like kind ways and sometimes said in critical ways, uh, but it's about the subtitle. Uh, so the title is The Promise of a Pencil. The subtitle is How an Ordinary Person Can Create Extraordinary Change. And um, in, in, I would say, 80% of the times that there's a critique of the book, it's about the subtitle. And people say, like, you were not in an ordinary position. You had, you know, like, loving parents. You grew up in a supportive community. I went to public school. But that said, it was in, you know, an affluent town. And, um, you know, I just had fortunate things fall my way and was working at Bain when I left. And so they're like, most people aren't in that position. That's not ordinary. Um, and that's the most, that's the most consistent criticism. And, you know, I never like seeing it, but it's, it's one I can certainly stomach. And it's, and also one of those things that, um, truthfully over time as somebody who didn't love confrontation as a kid growing up, it really kind of hardens and strengthens you to, to, to kind of read the words of your critics. And is that the type of thing where it's like, um, that, I mean, that's just what the publisher wanted. I mean, that's just something that's going to sell better. And ultimately the means justify the ends or ends justify the means in terms of, and not that that's like a negative thing, but like more people are going to see this message if it's a really catchy subtitle and the term ordinary is a bit, you know, maybe a stretch in, in some way of looking at it, but another way of looking at it, you know, you don't have like superpowers or anything. Well, I mean, truthfully, the, the subtitle is more guided by me than the publisher. We originally were going to go with um, the subtitle, how small acts um, create big change or can create big change. Uh, but I felt like that just limited the book again to like some social good novel. And it's, it's really not, you know, about just social good. It's about anyone who's in a restless place in their life and feels like they can go out and do more with their, you know, with, with their life, like with the journey they're going to live ahead. And that could be, you know, a single mom in her 40s. That could be somebody who's mid-level at a company. It could be, a, you know, a high school student. Um, and so uh, I thought, you know, it, it's too limiting as a subtitle. And the truth is, maybe this is like stupid or naive of me, but I, I don't think I'm particularly out of the ordinary. And when I started Pencil of Promise, it was with $25 and my friends were all losing their jobs. And, you know, I, I had a good job, but it's not like I was making you know, huge money at the time. I wasn't making six figures even. Um, and uh, I felt like, look, this is how an ordinary person can go out and, and create extraordinary change. And um, I, I felt like that was a much broader appeal uh, from not only just the messaging, but um, from the narrative going from $25 to Pencils of Promises now collectively raised over $25 million. Um, it was like, this is how anybody I think could replicate it. And what do you, I know you mentioned ordinary person, but for, for yourself, what do you think you're best at? What do you think your core competence is that has led you to be successful with this? Uh, I mean, the, the thing that I am uniquely best at, um, and I think that's almost more valuable than knowing what you're best at. Cause if you're really good at something, but there's a lot of other people that are really good at it, uh, it doesn't necessarily allow you to, to, you know, reach kind of success or scale in the things that you pursue. You need to be uniquely really good at something. The thing that I'm uniquely really good at is becoming delusionally um, confident and beyond belief to the point of knowledge that a certain idea is going to work. And then not only convincing myself, it's not even convincing, like I just know it in a way that most other people doubt, uh, and then articulating and communicating that vision in a way that garners tremendous momentum and commitment from others to say, you know something? I also believe that this is going to work against all odds and I want to be a part of it. And then, you know, I'm, I'm good at um, organizing infrastructure and, and um, 
you know, kind of building a company because I have the Bain training. And like I said, I've been doing entrepreneurial things since I was a kid. But the truth is, there's a lot of people that are much, much better than me at that. Um, the thing I'm, I'm kind of uniquely best at is, um, you know, I, I find like many founders, uh, if I figure out an idea that I believe is, is, you know, well positioned to create explosive, um, transformation in the world. And it's something that, uh, for me comes from a place of purpose, not passion. Uh, I, I think passion is really overrated. Passion is very fleeting, but purpose is enduring. Uh, if it comes for me from a place of purpose, like I, I genuinely believe this is why I am here is to accomplish this specific thing. And I'm uniquely positioned because of the accumulation of my life experiences. Um, when I find that thing, uh, few people I think are able to run at it as hard as I am. What would you be doing if you weren't in education? Uh, if I wasn't in education, uh, I mean, there's a couple other industries. So, so one thing I can tell you outright is that while my career thus far has been primarily focused on education for, um, you know, primary age children in rural parts of the developing world, uh, I would be working on higher education in the United States. Because uh, it's something that in the last year or two, I've become really, really interested in. And I just see huge fundamental issues with where we are and where we're headed. And I think it's going to take entrepreneurs with really big ideas to try and uh, shift that course. And I want to be one of them. So um, I, would, I would be working on higher education in the United States if I wasn't working in the current sector that I've worked in historically. And then, um, you know, I, I think I'd be working on something within technology. Uh, if I wasn't just focused on education, I, I'd, I'd be working on, you know, different forms of technology that can bring tremendous positive and benefit and impact into people's lives in whatever form that might be. What, what do you, when you talk about higher education, what is the, the, the biggest problem you want, or want to tackle? Is it, is it the debt? Is it the, just the content? Is it something else? It's, it's the um, falsified myth. Uh, that previously was validated and no longer is validated that uh, the majority of college um, degrees are worth the dollar investment that's now being asked of students. I, I just fundamentally don't think that there's about 4,000 registered uh, universities in the United States. I don't believe um, that the vast majority of them are worth the value proposition that uh, they're proposing to students. And so um, I, I just, I would want to break that down. If you were 18, what would you do? 18 to 2015, knowing what you know now? Uh, I mean, I'm going to throw out an arbitrary number, and it's it's probably not the correct number, but I, I think directionally it's correct. I, I would say if I could get into one of the top 250 colleges, I would go. And if I couldn't get into one of the top 250 colleges, I would not attend a traditional four-year university um, in the United States. I would figure out what sum of money I was comfortable taking out loans for, uh, hopefully not at rates that are as high as students currently get charged. And uh, I would create essentially my own roadmap for a two-year education that would lead to elevating my personal potential, uh, giving me real-world experiences that would transfer into the job market that I was interested in, and travel. And so I, I would do a hybrid combination of finding like a six-month kind of intern slash work experience, apprenticeship in an industry that I was interested in. I would pay for boot camp style courses uh, that were full deep immersion on a, a, a really interesting set of skills, both kind of like soft skills and hard skills. Um, and then I would invest in, in traveling um, with that money because I think it's a lot cheaper and it elevates your potential a lot more. That seems uh, immensely practical and helpful. 
it's amazing that more people aren't doing that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's going to be a big opportunity in the future to build institutions that enable that. Because, you know, if you're an 18-year-old kid, um, well, I think one of the hardest things is the absolute loss of structure that enters your days if you don't go to college. So, you know, up until that point, up until the end of high school, pretty much seven days a week, at, at bare minimum five days a week, have been laid out for you where you wake up in the morning and you know exactly where you're supposed to be at a certain point of time. And you can decide whether to go there or not. But you know that classes start at hour X and extracurriculars start at hour Y and sports at Z. And, you know, family wants you at dinner at this point. And I think part of why college has become so institutionalized in our culture is that in the American society, once you hit 18 plus, uh, there's a craving to continue that structure. Uh, and so I think there's going to be an opportunity to build institutions that bring structure into young people's lives post high school, but not through um, the myth of a four-year uh, accredited degree. Yeah, agreed. So let's talk about what we were talking about in the beginning, which is what you're, what you've, what's most on your mind right now, which is transitioning uh, pencils of promise. Uh, talk about talk about that process. Uh, what's that? What that has looked like, and what you're thinking about it. Sure. Um, so, you know, it started probably a year, year and a half ago, um, just in thinking about putting out a book and, and where my role could be most valuable to the organization. Uh, th there's a guy who's a really good friend and mentor of mine, Dan Rosenswig, who is the former COO of Yahoo and is now the CEO of Chegg, which is the largest company for college students. Um, and Dan gives a, a really great talk every year um, to college students where he says there's you know, essentially three types of individuals. There's three archetypes. Uh, there's founders, there's entrepreneurs, and there's executives. And you should really figure out which one of those three you are naturally suited to become in the workforce. You know, founders have tremendous tolerance for risk. They don't like a lot of structure. Uh, they're, they're comfortable in really chaotic environments. They tend to have, you know, a new idea every day. Um, that's a founder. An entrepreneur is really a builder. You know, someone who can take an idea, whether it's theirs or somebody else's, and take it from, you know, let's say, level five to level 10. Uh, and then you have executives. And those are the people that really make sure that the wheels don't fall off the ship once it's really big and are able to manage it through and, you know, are great with uh, structure and, and optimizing performance. And so you should figure out which one of those you are. And, and, and I know at this point that I'm a founder. Um, I'm, I'm decent at the entrepreneur side. I'm terrible at the executive side, but I'm, I'm uniquely positioned and, and I think pretty decent at uh, the founder stuff. Um, and so Pencil of Promise reached a point where uh, my role was to be both founder and CEO, and they became two very different jobs. Uh, so we went through a lengthy executive search. We had 700 candidates over the course of a year, and we ended up hiring uh, just a phenomenal, phenomenal leader that I would put in the entrepreneur category. He's been through a founder to CEO transition. He's got a 30-year track record of one thing and one thing only, and that's elevating student performance within uh, low-performing environments. And so he's never built a building in his life. Uh, he actually said on a call earlier today with one of our major partners, he said, I've never built a building, but I spent 30 years figuring out how to improve student outcomes. And that's where Pencil of Promise wants to go. And so I think in a lot of ways, you find that great leader, uh, you put them in a position to succeed, and then uh, you find your unique value add. And in my case, as founder, it's, it's really kind of as an external ambassador and champion for the great work that we've done. And to some degree, even as a storyteller, to bring in new opportunities and new partners. So uh, we'll get to you in a second, but 
talk and you earlier were mentioning transitioning pencils of promise from one type of organization to another type of organization. Talk more about that and and how has that come across? Uh, so uh, as I was saying earlier, we're known as a school building organization. It costs twenty five thousand dollars to build a school through pencils of promise, which is a pretty accessible price point. I mean, we've had kids as young as thirteen raise that type of money. We've had donors outright um, just provide checks to build multiple schools at the twenty five k price point. If you do so, you get an opportunity to dedicate it to a loved one. You know, I've dedicated schools to my grandmothers, my grandfathers, my parents, my siblings. It's it's really really special and you know an incredible way to honor somebody in a, a very meaningful and enduring way. Um, and you also uh, can potentially go on the ground to actually see the schools and the work. Um, but uh, that's that's kind of been our bread and butter thus far, and kind of quietly uh, internally, you know, we don't champion it as much because it's a, a a more difficult marketing message, but We've really been uh, busting our butts on teacher training and teacher support and innovative um, learning methods in the classroom and bringing new technologies into the classroom and figuring out what the future of learning can look like. And uh, now that we're at 305 schools, I believe, as of, um, as of today, maybe around 307, uh, we break around a new school every 100 hours. So, um, you know, the, the, the count is consistently changing. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you build a great structure and you have this model that requires co-investment like we do from the communities and the education ministry. Uh, having that great school is kind of all for naught unless kids are actually demonstrating increased gains in their learning and in their future opportunities. And so uh, now we're kind of saying, hey, we've gotten to a place of institutional credibility. We're seen as a real leader in global education. But where we really want to hang our hats is on saying when a kid enters a Pencils of Promise program, uh, you know, they come out the other side uh, with huge gains in literacy and numeracy and, and you know, great progression. And um, we're really transforming their lives. We're not just putting a better building in their community. Uh, and so that's that's really what we're focused on going forward. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. So I want someone to be able to listen to this interview like four years from now and see what what Adam was thinking. You know, you've, you've transit your you've got you got a CEO, um, you know, you're you're leading the vision of Pencils of Promise, but you also, you, you know, you're a founder, so you have ideas bubbling up all, all the time. H- how do you, and, you know, I identify as a founder too, and lo- lots of other people do. How do you kind of think about, you know, uh, what you want to do next, but at the same time making sure that the, the current baby is uh, properly taken care of and, and you're doing the best you can for it? Uh, take us through that decision. It's really tough. I mean, I was talking to somebody else, and, and, and they were you know, comparing uh, the relationship to Pencils of Promise like a relationship with a significant other or someone that you date in that, you know, at one point in time, it's a big part of your life. And at a later point in time, it, it might not be all that meaningful, but you always feel some kind of twinge of emotion for that person. And and where I corrected them is, is I think it's a lot more like literally having a child. And this is maybe not even stupid for a 31-year-old man to say who um, is married but doesn't even have children. Uh, so I can't fully grasp it, but there, there's a sense that I see from parents in that they will sacrifice their own well-being for their child's well-being, right? Uh, you see it all the time. And I think that uh, great founders, that, that's something that's very consistent. Uh, they will uh, kind of, you know, sh- take the short end of the stick themselves in the best interest of the entity long term. And those are really w- what you need to see, not just from founders, but from you know, great leadership in a company, but but the example has to be set by a founder. If people see the founders cutting corners, or the founders, you know, more of a taker than a giver when it comes to the organizational well-being, uh, then they all start to take. And so, um, 
you know, as I think about not being the day-to-day leader and kind of giving the keys slowly over time to a new CEO, uh, there's a reason why this has been a year and a half long process, why, you know, we had 700 candidates and we waited to find this kind of perfect seeming unicorn of an individual and Michael Doherty, our new CEO, um, because everybody knew that I was going to stay on board and make sure that everything was going really well and that we were going to continue to grow until the organization was well positioned to succeed. And now that he's already started as CEO, you know, my, my role is to still uh, be an active member of the organization, to still be really supportive, but just in a different position. Uh, and that's founder and board member. And, and you know, it's almost like sending, I, I understand why parents cry when their kids go to college. Uh, because it's this like bittersweet moment where you've reached this moment of immense pride, right? You, you kind of always dream your kid's going to go to this, you know, great place and, you know, be on their own. And at the same time, there's this kind of twinge of pain, like, well, maybe they don't need me anymore. And what you see is the kid still comes back to their parents all the time and asks them for meaningful advice and at pivotal points in their life, you know, the parent helps kind of, you know, shift or guide their path. And, and I think that's, that's pretty analogous to the way that it feels for me. In that, um, like, I, I'll, I'll always be the, the, you know, parent that the organization will come to, hopefully, and say, well, what do you think about this vision or this direction? And um, the other thing is, because uh, of, truthfully, the growth of the book, uh, I, I tend to be uh, kind of the, uh, the analogy I draw is a lightning rod in the middle of a field where a lot of inbound interest uh, comes to me personally. So I always give out my email. If there's anyone that's listening to this, and is, is either interested in kind of asking me some more questions or, uh, in particular, getting involved in being supportive of Pencil of Promise or, you know, funding or fundraising for a new school. My email is Adam and then the at sign and then I, just letter I, uh, promise.org, uh, not .com. So Adam at ipromise.org and just shoot me an email uh, either now or while listening to this and we can get you involved in a meaningful way. And um, I, I find that a lot of people come to me and then I'm able to introduce them to great members of the organization. And so I'm still able to add huge value, but it's not by sitting in on staff meetings and coaching the branding elements the way that I used to. It's, it's as um, a kind of representative for uh, the organization out in the world. Yeah. And uh, you also, you know, the analogy maybe carries over in that you have a baby, but you can also have another kid too. <laughs> you know, Totally. Totally. Right. And, and, you know, over time, you know, you, you might have one kid who's off in college and then you got another kid who's in high school. And so they get more of your attention. But, um, you know, the difference for me between the relationship uh, with a significant other and a child is that at one point in time, um, you really might not care at all <laughs> about someone that you were once in a relationship with. And uh, with a child, you're, you're, you're always going to think about it out there in the world, whether it's a day to day part of your life or not. And that's that's how I feel about, you know, kind of birthing a company is it's, it's pretty hard to really not care. It's, it, you know, came through you, it came out of you. And, uh, in a lot of ways you, you helped it get to a certain place. Um, and so you're always going to, you know, uh, want to be a part of it and, and help ensure that it's, uh, well-being is, is, uh, taken care of. Another thing I want to talk about is the idea of becoming a very public person. Um, because I think it's interesting, you know, I, I hung out with you in Israel and I saw that, you know, you're obviously, uh, when, when the mic, when the spotlight is on you, you're a charismatic speaker, but otherwise, you know, sometimes you're kind of quiet and more introverted with your, with your significant other and don't always want attention. What, uh, how has that been like becoming a more public person and being around other public figures and just, you know, the balance between like turning off and turning on, you know, 
Yeah, yeah, it's a great it's a great question because because I had this perception I think you know growing up that people that were public figures in any capacity was because one they craved the spotlight and and two um, this is just by default how they are at all times and uh, as you know my work with Pencil of Promise started to grow uh, you know at first I, I was really reluctant to do any public speaking I mean there's years of the organization before the first interview I ever gave was in 2010 and I started the organization in 2008 so I waited two years before I did a single interview because I, I didn't want you know any acknowledgement um, of like press or PR or limelight or um, public speaking or any of that stuff I just wanted to be heads down because I, I like being in these rural communities and you know, I'm a middle child and, and naturally I'm, I'm an introvert. Uh, so anyone who knew me as a kid growing up or even knows me now uh, amongst my core group of friends, none of them will tell you that uh, I'm one of the more talkative or louder or kind of outgoing people, at least in my group of friends. I'm definitely one of the more reserved. And you probably saw that on our trip together in April that I, if, if you want me to, I can engage and turn it on. But my default is actually much more kind of reserved and laid back and, and observational and um you know, one of my big beliefs is that listening intensely is a far more valuable skill than speaking immensely. Uh, and so uh, I, I just find a lot of great leaders are extraordinary listeners. And uh, while I get my ambition from, from my, my dad, um, I get this, you know, commitment to integrity that I think my mom's always really embodied as well as, she, you know, she's just an extraordinary listener. And so um, as, as the organization reached a you know, a little bit of maturity, two, three years in, uh, it just became obvious that for us to uh, garner the next level of opportunity, I had to become a storyteller. I had to put, in particular, my story uh, and the organization story uh, on a lot of stages and, and tell it publicly. And I was so reluctant. And I was so nervous about it. But um, I, I think people surprise themselves a lot of times. And I found out that after 10 or 15 super nervous speeches, uh, I actually really enjoyed the reaction from an audience because I, I literally was watching someone's life change within a 20-minute talk, and I'd get an email follow-up from them uh, saying, like, this talk actually changed my decision-making going forward, and it's going to change my life in some way. And and I realized, well, not only is, is this something that I'm starting to really enjoy, but it's hugely beneficial for the organization and for the audience members that are are listening. And so I should really study this and become good at it. And so I've academically studied storytelling, you know, public speaking, I mean, you name it. I went into like research and evaluation and I'm constantly kind of tinkering and uh, with, with my delivery and storytelling, all these different things. Um, and so, you know, writing a book is kind of the ultimate manifestation of that. Uh, but I've always been a writer. So that was a lot, a lot more natural. Uh, the outfront speaker uh, it took time, but I mean, for anyone that's listening to this uh, and you know has aspirations to build something uh, that's going to change a lot of lives uh, in you know ways large and uh, or even small, the reality is at some point in time you have to become a storyteller and you have to tell a story that can transfer from one person to another. And so, um, whether it's practicing with five people or ten people or twenty people, uh, you should really start that journey now. Uh, and you might actually surprise yourself uh, because, as you've seen, I'm, I'm naturally pretty laid back and introverted. Uh, but uh, in the best interest of, of Pencils of Promise, I had to become a storyteller. And I found out it's something that I really love. And, you know, I do a lot of public speaking now and consistently am on, you know, stages with hundreds and oftentimes thousands of people in an audience. And there's few things at this point that I enjoy more than having that opportunity. 
And one thing I also noticed is that you were also very intellectually curious, but at, at some time I'm curious about the, um, the tension between, you know, I remember in Israel, obviously, which is a heated topic for many people, you wanted to uh, potentially post something that was asking a question, but you were unsure whether, you know, some people, potentially donors or, or people who are close to the org, you know, would, would you were obviously were pro or, you know, super extreme if they would be rankled in some sense. Um, talk about how, how, how that's affected you, you know, the tension, you, you can't offend anyone. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a weird place to be in, <laughs> to be known as a chair, a founder of a charity, and a charity that works with the rural poor in the developing world. Because there's this perception that um, somehow you must not, you know, make the same mistakes that we all make, or you know, uh, do the stupid things that we've all done at certain points in time. And um, so, so that is definitely a place of tension. And the other thing is, uh, you know, if you're uh, a founder or a CEO, especially in, in the public light in, in the way that I, I've probably been over the last three or four years, uh, you have to be constantly aware that at all times your personal brand uh, places a kind of thumbprint on the organization's brand. And I remember in the early days, I don't know, 2010, 2011, I was really reluctant to get on Twitter. I did not want to get on Twitter at all because I felt like it was going to be sharing more of my life than I was comfortable with. And uh, then everyone was like, well, uh, are you interested in following, you know, Bill Gates or Microsoft? Uh, are you interested in following, you know, founder X or the company's account? And I was always like, well, the founder is kind of who I'm interested in learning more about. And they were like, well, that's how most people feel. And so I got on Twitter at the urging of, of my team and my grandmother who wanted to know what I was up to day to day. Um, and, uh, it was kind of strange when my personal account, uh, started to accelerate uh, in kind of follower uh, numbers a lot faster than the organizations. The organization already had, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers. It was already pretty big. Um, but I, I started to see that, you know, people were interested in uh, the, the personal side more so than the organizational side and kind of getting that peek behind the scenes. And yet I oftentimes have to make a decision between how much I'm willing to disclose and how much I'm not. And uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, who um, is, a, is a board member of Pencil of Promise and also someone who's been an amazing friend and mentor, you know, he says that, that every single person needs to acknowledge that nowadays they are a modern media company unto themselves. And I think there's a, there's a lot of truth in that. And so it is something that, you know, I'm certainly aware of, uh, that my personal brand is out there and ultimately um, uh, it's going to impact the organization. And that's, again to the earlier point about sometimes you sacrifice uh, your own preferences in the best interests of your company or your organization. And so while I might personally want to say something or have a certain response, I always have to filter it through the lens of, well, will this negatively or adversely impact uh, our organization in any way, shape or form? Um, and if not, then I'm comfortable doing it. But, you know, I, I probably can't write some of the more, I don't know, controversial jokes or uh, ideas that that I might have at a certain point in time because of the association to uh, founding a charity. Yeah, sometimes I'm in favor. I, I've never experimented with this yet, but when I find secret identities or, or uh, anonymous accounts that can just say like really interesting and not not only trolling accounts, but like really you know deep stuff that might upset someone, but is needs to be said or something. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the truth is for me that that place is in my journal. I mean, I've I've been writing for 15 years now and have a bunch of stacked up journals, um, at home. And, and that's kind of where I can pour out my truth. 
uh, and that's a place that I enjoyed. And, and I think there's something to be said about not need, needing everyone in the world to know all of your inner thoughts. Uh, I think there's a real value in anonymity um, to some degree, and it's, it's something that I don't think is cherished enough nowadays. And um, it's also truthfully something that uh, I, I think when you, I mean, another mantra from the book is um, create separation that builds connection. And that's a chapter that's really about kind of getting off of my phone in the early days when I thought every big opportunity needed to be replied to right away on email. And then I realized actually all these big opportunities are happening when I put my phone away and I have a great face-to-face meeting with somebody. Uh, And so I needed to create more opportunities in which I was separated so I could build a real connection with somebody. And I I find that so many of the things that I think in my head and, you know, I kind of want to tweet out if, if I pause and I don't, you know, post it to the world but I share that honest intention or idea or um, kind of truth with somebody else in a one-on-one or you know, a small group setting, it, it actually becomes much more valuable of a statement uh, in that context than it would have been if I just kind of threw it out into the ether of, of the Twitter you know, sphere. Yeah. Um, describe the, well, actually, before we get there, uh, what, uh, what are some of your favorite books and books you'd recommend to others? Uh, I'm a big reader. Uh, so this is a tough one for me. I mean, I can tell you the ones that influence me most. Uh, so the, the first one would be man's search for meaning by Viktor Frankl. Uh, that that's kind of, for me, like the Holy grail. Um, it's the book that I probably gift out most. Uh, if if I have a good meeting with somebody and I really like them, uh, like in their core, uh, I, I usually send people that book. I probably have a stack of 20 of them in paperback in my office. Uh, so, you know, there might even be somebody, that's listening to this, that's probably received that book from me. Uh, so Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl is huge for me. Um, Paulo Coelho's book, The Alchemist, uh, I read right as I was going on semester at sea, really pivotal, pivotal place in my life as a 21-year-old. And it's a book that I, I've gifted to others, but I, I, I've also come back and read it multiple times. And each time it you know, creates a huge sense of kind of meaning uh, in my life and uh, really talks about the notion of a personal legend and um, you know, the world conspiring in your favor when you set intentions in a certain direction. And it's guided a lot of my thinking. And then my favorite book of all time is Shantaram by uh, David Gregory Roberts. It's just, oh, it's, it's a masterpiece. It's, it's a beast. It's probably, I don't know, 950 pages or something like that. But um, it's so beautifully written. It's this unbelievable narrative that's based on a true story. And it's just filled with these nuggets of truth. Like you'll be reading about a prison fight that this guy gets involved in, but then he'll just drop this, you know, piece of knowledge that like, you know, kicks you in the stomach and knocks the wind out of you. Cause you, you just can't believe how beautifully he's articulated, you know, the world in one sentence. And so I just love that book. Uh, it's really my favorite book. And, uh, if anyone's, um, read that book and then they go and they read the promise of a pencil, I think you'd see that his actual writing style, you know, his, his, the, the way in which he crafts narrative and prose um, is, is the one that probably influenced my writing style most. Now, uh, last question. Uh, describe the university or, you know, learning experience that you want your, your future kids to, kids to have. Um, well, in all honesty, hopefully I'll one day go build it. <laughs> so I don't know what name it'll undertake, but hopefully they'll uh, be attending uh, an experience that, that, you know, I will have created. Um, so describe but, the one you know, you're going to create. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a couple foundational pieces in my mind. The first is that uh, the majority of jobs that will be most in demand 10 years from now do not exist today. And that's just a, a, a fact. If you look at any trend or analytical data over time, 
the majority of the 10 most uh, in-demand jobs in 2010 didn't exist in 2000. You know, app developer, probably what most of the people that are listening to this podcast do, their job didn't exist 10 years ago. Uh, and so hard technical skills aren't super valuable, you know, studying a chemistry and biology, unless you're going to a couple fields, um, the, the, um, topical stuff isn't as important. What's really important is 21st century skills. Uh, and those are things like collaborative teamwork, um, uh, solving ambiguous problems, persuasive communication, public speaking. Uh, so I would want something that really grounds them in, uh, what is actually applicable into the modern day workforce and 21st century skills. Uh, I would definitely want some uh, component of it to be full immersion travel, um, ideally just with a backpack and themselves getting you know their, their hands dirty and into a part of the world that's unfamiliar and really challenges them to come of age a bit. Uh, I'd want an, a third component to be uh, probably around uh, the ability to the best term that I can use is code, but um, whatever seems to be the skill that will create autonomy. You know, nowadays, I think if you can code, you have autonomy. You can um, craft your own path going forward. And I think that's hugely, hugely valuable in the way that 100 years ago, literacy was the foundational building block of autonomy. So it might 20 years from now be coding. It might be something else, but whatever that is. And then the fourth part is um, I'd want them to actually work on something that uh, feels like a job. You know, so much of a college education today has no bearing on the experience of what you would have once you started your first job. And so uh, I'd want them to do some type of kind of project-based learning that's uh, grounded in competency, but also has a connection to what it's like to actually work in the real uh, workforce. I wonder what uh, the future autonomy skill could be. Yeah, I mean, my, my guess is if I had to guess 20 years from now, it's going to be something connected to, um, to AI. I think it'll be something connected to artificial intelligence, um, whatever is that version of kind of whatever coding looks like, but um, something that, you know, enables another person to uh, elevate the capabilities of AI. Wow. Cool. Adam, thank you for, for taking the time. It's good to uh, chat with you again. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Great questions. Absolutely. The book is uh, The Promise of a Pencil. Uh, where can... Um, you know, people find you online. Sure. So uh, a couple ways. The book, uh, if you just go on Amazon or Barnes and Nobles or anywhere else, it's it's available, you know, nationwide uh, and in a whole host of languages too, based on whatever language you might want to read it in. Uh, and then um, I'm on Twitter at just my name at Adam Braun. Uh, my website is adambraun.com where I blog and you know share a lot of thoughts on kind of life and leadership lessons. Um, and then you know the easiest way is just email me directly if you have some thoughts. I'd love to hear them. Uh, you can just shoot me a note at uh, adam at ipromise.org and I is just the letter I. Cool. Thanks, Adam. Uh, great chatting as always and talk to you soon.